Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Andy Zoll. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to reach the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Andy, or David at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. How are you doing this week, Andy? Uh, I'm good. How are you guys been? Doing good. You feeling good about pinch, hit, uh, pinch hitting for Anna? Uh, always. Always a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I hope she's enjoying. You know, it's the tail end of that vacation with three kids, so they're either having the time of their lives or it's time to get back. It could be time to wrap it up. Yeah, just like, we're going home early. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing this week? I'm good. Yeah, I, I have a feeling Anna is is done right now. <laughs> yeah. I think she's she's happy to be back in whatever whatever state that is. She is she's happy to be out of Missouri. That's the one thing with the the long car ride is you can still have a great time, but you know at the end of it, it's like, man, we still got like 12 hours in a car. The worst part is that last half hour. Yeah. Like for me, it's whenever I come back from, not that anybody can relate to this, but like Janesville oh, like yeah. to home is the worst part. <laughs> it's yeah. like a half an hour. It's like you just, you see the roadside miles getting fewer, but it doesn't feel like you're getting closer. Any yeah. road you've already been on a million times yeah. feels like three times as long after yeah. that stretch. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was uh, college for me. I was four hours away. In just that last 30 minutes, you know, you're going 90 miles an hour because you're doing the math in your head. Like, yeah. if I go 90, I'm cutting like a minute off every three and then, we should be, you know, it should be good. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor. Oil Eaters household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. And we're back. Our first story this week, former regulators describe yelling matches with Musk. According to the Washington Post, some conversations between the NHTSA and Tesla's Elon Musk got testy. An anonymous former safety official said Musk, quote, screamed, protested, and threatened to sue when notified of a 2016 investigation. The inquiry came after a driver died when a Tesla on autopilot crashed into a tractor trailer. The NHTSA used everything from threats and flattery to pressure and ego challenges to get Musk to cooperate with federal safety measures. When asked for a comment, Musk told the Washington Post, quote, For the 100th time, give my regards to your puppet master, which refers to Jeff Bezos, who owns the publication, so Jeff, Musk is at least still keeping it light. <laughs> he's uh, he's making friends here. He managed to get alienate a government agency and the richest man in the world like in one sentence. That's right. So he's an efficient. Well man. done. Mm-hmm. Well done. It's interesting, you know, looking at the Tesla buyer, looking at a bunch of different sites, market research, all that stuff. You can sort of, as a composite, say the average Tesla buyer comes down to like a forty-five to fifty-five year old white guy mm-hmm. who makes an above-average income. 
Okay. Okay. They're the ones that are buying Teslas. And I don't know about you, but in my experience in dealing with that demographic, they're not huge fans of government oversight. So it kind of feels like this is just consistent with his branding or his image mm-hmm. sort of bucking against the system, being difficult to deal with intentionally probably at times. He's this extremely intelligent guy. He knows exactly what he's doing. He And I think the other part of this is I'm sure that he feels with his over-the-air updates on everything that even if something like this happens, mm-hmm. he feels he is in better shape to handle and communicate these issues than any government agency ever could be. Right. And I can't debate that part of it. Mm-hmm. The bottom line is we're still a society that has regulators and rules and everything else, especially when you're dealing with, you know, a 2,500-pound piece of metal hurling down the uh, the highway at 80 miles an hour. Without a driver. Without maybe. a driver. Yeah. You, you kind of <laughs> need to have some guidelines there. Yeah. So um, I can only, you know, we've had customers and different people we've had to deal with who mm-hmm. can be like this at times. Oh, yeah. So you can sort of sympathize with this regulator who's just trying to do his job throughout every tactic you could possibly think of in dealing with an eight-year-old and it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I think that you went through the entire gamut of what the NHTSA used <laughs> against Musk, where it's just like, listen, you're going to listen to us and you're going to do what we say. But you know what? We know you're a smart guy. We know you're a smart guy. I mean, look at you created the most valuable automotive company possible. But I mean, you should really challenge yourself. Yeah. I mean, can you do this? I don't know if you can. I mean, I... Uh, Andy, I really like how NHTSA, the uh, anonymous source, basically said, yeah, we had to treat him with kid gloves, and eventually it worked. <laughs> we, when, when we talk about public figures, we don't really know them at all. We just have this perception of what we think they're like. Yeah, we have the composite that we've created. But given all that we think we know about Elon Musk, wouldn't it have been much more surprising if he was courteous and polite to federal <laughs> regulators? Like, yeah, this was like just the least shocking development that would have been great of just, him dealing with highway regulators you know what he's actually just a really nice guy yeah played it very cool yeah, yeah. always signs his emails sincerely <laughs> yeah um no uh as jeff mentioned this is a bit of an object lesson to just maybe just don't yell at people like mm-hmm. they're just doing their job and also you uh in my experience you uh the adage that you catch more flies with uh honey than vinegar is true 100 percent of the time so mm-hmm. maybe just take it down a notch and let these people do their jobs, particularly when, as we've mentioned, they're trying to make sure your software isn't killing people on the highway. Isn't it bees? Probably. Okay. Maybe ants. No. I would think flies too. Whatever. No. Okay. I mean, they like something sweet. Yeah. Uh, what I took from bees this Bees make honey. <laughs> yeah, I think Andy's right. It is flies. I'm pretty, on, sure David. It's, I'm pretty sure it's ants and bees. Who's running this thing? <laughs> the ants and bees are running this. Um, well, what one takeaway for me was that the pressure is working. So in the past six months... Tesla has issued at least a dozen voluntary recalls. So however they've gone about it, like like you said, Andy, it'd be nice if we could all be adults about it sometimes. But uh, it's they're at least getting through and uh, they're making some headway, which I think is going to have to happen as Tesla continues to become a larger entity and there are more Teslas on the road, if, according to. Yeah. You just wonder if he's going to get more people around him saying, hey, relax, this is what you got to do. Or if he's going to go the other way and just start firing people yeah. <laughs> and making his, his circle smaller and smaller. Well, that's, uh, you know, you got to play the game. Uh, one of the uh, one of the people that was quoted in the post was Phil Koopman, a associate professor at Carnegie, Carnegie Mellon University. He told the post, quote, Tesla is presumably smart. Uh, Tesla is presumably smart enough to realize when they don't have the upper hand anymore. Tesla has a choice to make. They have to decide whether to cave or to go to the mat. And the reality is federal safety regulators 
with federal safety regulators, they're going to lose. And I mean, that's, is that, do I mean, does Musk keep pushing back because he thinks he can still win this? Or is he just being obstinate? Well, I, they're both, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, again, if you look at the two different methodologies between doing the whole process of a recall through mm-hmm. the NHTSA and doing his over-air software upgrades, there's no doubt his way of doing it is better. Mm-hmm. There's, I don't think there's any question on that. But not everybody does that right now. And right. we're all in the same boat. We all have to play by the same rules. So what he could do is sort of assist NHTSA and maybe maybe not the other automakers, but at least this regulatory agency in helping them get on board with what he's doing. That's not going to happen when you're screaming at him and being difficult to work with. Right. So I think that op, that's where that obstinance, obstinance comes in as opposed to realizing, hey, if I just played ball with these guys, I could probably get them on board with me. Mm-hmm. It's not going to do that. That's no. just that's not his personality in any way. And Andy, there is a point to be made that all automakers push back. You know, when when these things come out, the the issue here is that it seems like sometimes a real overreaction to what are small problems. One of the cases they talked about was Tesla had a non-compliant sound effect to alert pedestrians. Just seemed like that was an easy one. Just like, oh, we'll make it sound different. But I could just see him losing his mind over, you know, you're reaching out because of a noise. It's not even it's not even just automakers. All businesses push True. back against regulators. Yeah. So yeah. it's not. It, you know, it's not unheard of even a little bit. It's just everyone likes a story about a famous person flying off the handle. So here we are. Right. Talking if, about it on the podcast. If only we had the <laughs> cell phone footage, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Our next most popular story this week. Leopard shuts down Mercedes plant. A couple of weeks ago, a Mercedes Benz factory in Western India hosted, quote, a very special guest. A young male leopard strolled into the plant and forced the company to evacuate its workers. Footage shows the large cat wandering through the premises before personnel from a nearby leopard rescue shot it with a dart and took it back to the facility. Mercedes resumed normal operations the next day. Andy, what an incredible way to get a half day off. I think they might have gotten a full day out of it. Okay. Which is <laughs> which is good. This is a actually it's an odd story, but it's kind of a happy story all the way around. Nobody was hurt, Leopard wasn't hurt, got uh taken back to the rescue and examined and presumably let go by now. Mm-hmm. Um turned into a rug. Let's <laughs> let's hope not. Whoa. I'm just saying let's hope not, but that's the other side. No. <laughs> um <laughs> to a wildlife preserve, man. <laughs> um I guess we don't know what goes on there, but okay. Uh no, this is you know, you see things like this anywhere, um, which is all over the world, where humans come into contact with wildlife and their habitats. It just so happened that this was a giant cat because it's in India and not here where it could be a coyote or a raccoon or whatever. A deer. Um, a deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I I liked this story because, I mean, obviously it has its appeal just on its face. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I happened to catch a show uh, I, I don't know. I think it was on Netflix, but it was about urban wildlife and it would, it was one of those Attenborough type things where they just, you know, first they're in New York talking about Falcons, then smash cut to wherever. And w- one segment was, uh, this person, I think in, uh, Mumbai going around trying to educate people about leopards because 
they're looking for food like every everybody else. So oh, yeah. they're they're trying to protect people and uh, mostly their pets mm-hmm. uh, from leopards that are just out and about at night in Mumbai, usually being undetected. This one uh, got detected, as we can see. So yeah. so um, that yeah, that is more like the coyote problem in Madison right now, where as the city continues to sprawl, they come into neighborhoods and, you know, the easiest meal has been small dogs and cats yep. uh, to which I. I mean, I hope that they solve the leopard problem the same way my neighborhood's trying to solve the coyote problem, where you shake a sock full of change at it. Does that work? That's what they said. I know. I told them I was going to use a baseball bat or a gun. <laughs> and they're just like, why? I'm like, because it's eating my stuff. That's yeah. where I draw the line. Like, uh, it can eat the trash, but if it's eating my dog, I'm not going to go shake a sock full of nickels at it. Like, <laughs> I'm charging it with a fire axe. Yeah, I'd go more country on that thing if I was me. Yeah, that so. was. I mean, maybe it was because I was raised on a farm, and when you know a raccoon ate the chickens, the raccoon, the raccoon died for its crimes. And so did a couple other ones. That's yeah. right. And then you yeah. know, you even kind of left the raccoon laying there. That was, the other ones knew. No, that was my brother's rule. It's like you take one, I'm taking six. I'm like, yeah. and he would just sit out there till he found that sixth. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, you know, this story was not without its jokes. Uh, trying to understand which is a great handle on our website, said Mercedes was going to have a surprise unveiling of its new line of seat covers for 2023, but now the cat's out of the bag. Well done. And outdoing uh, was Timster61, who said, if it was a Jaguar, that would have just been hilarious. Jaguar shuts down Mercedes plant. And it's just, you know... I was actually going to say something similar. He beat me to it. Oh, gotcha. Well done. It's uh you know they uh sometimes they cut, they get pretty critical on the the site and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, <laughs> Andy in particular seems to just flow with that stuff, so it's good that oh, yeah. he rolls here right off for my that back. discussion. Yeah. yeah, but you know, hey, they still got jokes. <laughs> What's well, gonna you know you mentioned Mumbai, which is it's actually kind of interesting. They do have they think something like forty or fifty leopards that they know of roaming around the city, and one of the things they actually mentioned is. They're okay with the leopards because there's a lot of either stray or wild dogs in that city. So the leopards kind of help out in that capacity too. We don't, they go after the pets, unfortunately, as well, but they're also uh, taking out some of the stray. Got a little ecosystem going yes. on there. Yeah, which is crazy. The feral animals. What's even crazier is like this is not the first time this has happened in India. Mm. Five years ago, October 2017, a leopard also wandered into a Suzuki factory overnight. And in this one, they had to use raw meat and a tranquilizer gun to lure the cat out. And this was a bigger one that that got in there. It was a big, much larger uh, leopard. So the video was amazing if you get a chance to watch it Um, because that it reminded me of a house cat just kind of snooping around, checking things out, was not looking Mm -hmm. to tear anything up. And then when they did get it, just kind of the way it like flopped down and went to sleep. (laughs) It just it looked like a house cat. That was was, uh, the one thing. Uh, with the video is the shot is the cat just laying down, hanging out, you know, with its uh, beautiful eyes staring at you. And then it cuts to the other angle and it's just that giant dart sticking out of its backside. <laughs> it's like, a very photogenic cat until you see that yeah. after shot. That beautiful like, animal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gorgeous animal. <laughs> but yeah, that was. Um, yeah. I mean, what's the solution? How does it? I mean, I, around here we see and, you know, we worked in manufacturing facilities. You see chipmunks, squirrels, yeah. birds, birds, a lot of birds. Yeah. Even like once in a while when it's a, like a real rural setting, you'll even hear about like a deer the in deer. the loading dock or something. Mm-hmm. 
man, what are you doing to get a leopard in there? I don't allowing one in. I don't know how that was. My biggest question was, how do you plan for this? We talk about, uh, you know, business continuity and making sure like, you know, even OSHA has plans for like, uh, volcano eruptions as to how to outrun the lava. Um, I mean, this is one where it's like, you got to make sure you have at least a tranquilizer gun <laughs> and a large mat to carry it out on. I don't know. Um, what do you think would have happened if there would have been, because it got in overnight. Mm-hmm. What if it rumbles in in the middle of the day? I, you know, I, it was, hopefully I, it's as casual of a leopard as this one was. I yeah. haven't looked into whether they're nocturnal or not, but they might be nocturnal. Okay. So they're okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what, if I rem- my memory is right from that Attenborough like show, they were slinking around at night and really nobody was the wiser. There's just these enormous cats Jeez. stomping around Mumbai. Yeah. Different place. I, uh, I also, I had to look up to see other incidents of this. And uh, in 2019, a female polar bear roamed in, not into a Russian factory, but it was right around the factory. And they uh, reported that it was exhausted, but hungry. And that's where it's like, okay, no one's going home. Gather so up this the, thing gets some food. You know that, that bag lunch you brought yeah, in? Throw your that's, that's, out. that's going to the polar bear. Yep. Yeah. Another one was uh, in India again, was a lion was found roaming around a uh, cement factory in 2020 and that one you know a leopard looks like a you know it's still a big cat but it looks a little bit harmless it, when you yeah. see the uh closed circuit footage of this lion around the cement factory yeah. no thank you no thank you <laughs> like it's not really an order of magnitude larger but it feels like it yeah it's just yeah. like there's you, a domestic element to these cats that don't have the huge mane yeah. and Teeth yeah. sticking out of their, their mouth. Yeah. I just see the guy outside the factory, like, smoking a cigarette. <laughs> this lion comes by, and he's just like, that's the end of that. <laughs> We're shutting her down. All right. Well, so, the big Transition story here, between these two stories. Well, mm-hmm. you no, know, it's just you got to have a contingency plan in place, you know, for big cats or coyotes. You that's right. Protect your business. Our next most popular story this week, EV battery factory to pay $40 an hour. Graphex Technologies and Emerald Energy Solutions are planning a $60 million plant north of Detroit, and they plan to create jobs paying an average of $40 an hour. The venture will process natural graphite to be used in lithium-ion batteries to power EVs. The factory will create 125 jobs, and while some entry-level jobs will start much lower, some roles will pay up to $60 per hour, which works out to about $117,000 a year. Graphics CEO John DeMeo said the significance of this plant on U.S. soil, quote, cannot be overstated. Jeff, not just for the company, but for the entire U.S. EV industry. So what's interesting here, there's a couple of interrelated things as I saw it anyway. First of all, it's really cool to be seeing this supply chain coming into the continental U.S., Mm -hmm. middle of the country, right where there is a big, huge automotive infrastructure there in Detroit. So this facility is going to be dealing with graphite processing which is a big part of EV batteries, as you were just talking about. What's kind of interesting there is graphite has not been sourced or mined in the U.S. in about 30 years. Mm. Reason being, there was huge deposits found in China. China mined all this graphite, flooded the market, drove the prices way down to the point where, again, it didn't make sense for for U.S. companies to actually mine this. So everything has been coming primarily from China, Brazil, um, Canada is also a big graphite importer. Mm-hmm. So, but now we've got this dynamic with EVs and these batteries. Graphite's obviously a big part of that. 
And earlier this week, we also heard of a rumor where President Biden and the Biden administration was going to use the Defense Production Act potentially to authorize a lot of mining of these minerals that are needed for EV batteries okay. to help offset a lot of the stuff that's going on in relation to rising gas prices. It's also no secret the Biden administration has a huge agenda or a huge focus on promoting electric vehicles. Yeah, and EVs. Yeah. So all that kind of comes together when we look at this story. Right now, again, we haven't mined um, um, graphite here in how long? It's in 30 years. But there are still deposits in Texas, Alabama, Pennsylvania, and New York. Okay. So <laughs> if we really want this factory to bring this, this supply chain and bring this critical uh, material here to the U.S., are they also going to, we also going to open up mining potentially? Mm -hmm. Is that going to become a bigger focus? And with this step by the Biden administration that's been sort of rumored or proposed, everything might be lining up to become even less reliant on China and other places in Asia for an electric vehicle battery infrastructure here mm -hmm. in the U.S. Andy, I think a big part of uh, this story's popularity is that, you know, people see the headline. They see $40 an hour. And, you know, we had a lot of comments on the site and online uh, on YouTube where people were like, OK, bring it to Pennsylvania. Bring it, you know, bring it to our factory. Uh, it, you know, we keep hearing about wages going up. But I looked up, uh, I went to ZipRecruiter, and they had a national average for manufacturing jobs. They said the average salary was twenty-seven, a little over $27,000 per year. New York is actually paying the highest average, which is north of $30,000 per year. So is it just maybe a lag that ZipRecruiter's numbers, which only come from ADP, are lagging? Or, you know, is this the new normal in terms of higher wages? So... My original thought with this story is I just did kind of a cursory Google search and $40 an hour comes out to around uh, 80000 a year, give mm -hmm. or take, um, which didn't sound crazy to me for a high-tech manufacturing operation. But given those numbers you just mentioned, may maybe it is. Yeah. Um, and so that does give us the opportunity to mention that, you know, that we've talked a lot for years about the skills gap in manufacturing, and that's an issue with public perception and education, workforce training, all these other things. But there's all this anecdotal uh, stories about, you know, the inability to hire workers, particularly of late after the pandemic and that sort of thing. Well, if you're paying $27,000 an hour, of course, <laughs> yeah. like the, the solution has always been there. And I don't think it's probably $40 an hour, mm -hmm. which again is just the average here, but it has to be more than that. Like you can't complain about lack of workers when you're paying that kind of salary. Right. You just can't. Mm -hmm. No, and it is, uh, I only looked up the average wage um, in Wisconsin, which it has been trending up, but production workers are making uh, north of $16 an hour. But I mean, you see, Jeff, you see something like $40 an hour. And if you even live close or you're willing to relocate, you have to be inter interested in those jobs. Yes, but I think they're also going to be very selective. I mean, it is 125 jobs, so that's not a huge number, but mm -hmm. it is a, it's a healthy one, obviously. Yeah. Good pay, but it's also a very high-tech, very kind of dynamic type of – I, I have a hard time believing these are going to be a lot of hourly employees. This yeah. seems like more of a salaried gig, mm -hmm. which is why I think when – yes, that, that number is at first sort of eye-catching, but when you really do some of the math, yeah. um, I think there's also the potential of this being a joint venture, you know – some of those things, like in terms of benefits, could also cost more. Yeah. Um, so maybe they need to compensate for that. Like Andy said, though, it's very encouraging to see a company come out and realize if we want this to work, if we want to get the right people, we need to 
make the the number one incentive incentivizing. Right. I mean, it needs to be appealing. So by paying people a higher wage for a higher degree, difficulty job, something that's going to be more demanding, something that might not be just your typical nine to five. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great move and it'll be interesting again to see how it all comes together. If they can get all those people, keep that plant pumping and really develop that supply chain that we need internally here in the U S for, for EV batteries. And in terms of the EV battery supply chain in the U.S., we have a lot of EV battery factories coming online within the next five years, next three years. Uh, as of October 25th, we have a new Ford battery plant coming to Memphis, Tennessee. Ford and SK joint venture coming to central Kentucky. Uh, GM and LG uh, joint ventures in Ohio, Tennessee, and the always elusive to be determined, uh, SK innovation. We talked a lot about the, uh, EV battery plants going into Georgia. Cause there was a lot of, yep. uh, uh, fighting going on there. Stellantis and LG has a plant coming in 2024. Stellantis and Samsung have one in 2025. Toyota has one coming in, uh, North Carolina in 2025 and Volkswagen has one planned for Chattanooga, Tennessee. So, the supply chain is going to change drastically. And like, I know that you talk about this a lot, Jeff, but hopefully the demand is there to uh, keep pace. Well, it seems like there's going to be a lot of pressure to stimulate that demand. Yeah. Um, And it also feels like the OEs are definitely taking steps to limit options to sort of steer everybody in that direction of going towards an electric vehicle. And I think as the range gets better and it quells a lot of those concerns, Mm -hmm. there's not, I think there's going to be a greater level of reception to it. When you combine that with fewer options, um, you think there's going to be growth. <laughs> yep. It'll also be interesting when you mention all of those battery factories coming online. And then again, that report about Biden really looking to loosen some of those regulations or use that Defense Act mm-hmm. to let people go after those other subs- those other minerals as well, the lithium and everything else that's needed. Right. They're going to need the raw materials. Right. All right. Our next most popular story this week, GM company asks workers to sleep on factory floors. A COVID-19 outbreak in Shanghai prompted a new lockdown in a city of more than 26 million people. The lockdown is part of China's zero-COVID strategy, and it's proved challenging for automakers and suppliers. Tesla suspended production at its Shanghai plant for four days. Other manufacturers did the same, but some others are getting creative. For example, a General Motors joint venture in Shanghai kept the lights on by asking employees to sleep on factory floors and work in isolation. The joint venture is with state-owned SAIC Motor and makes Chevrolet, Buick, and Cadillac vehicles. Tesla apparently tried to pull off something similar, but Jeff couldn't get enough provisions to make it happen. So what's worse, the fact that you have to sleep at work or that you have to sleep at work and then work alone throughout the day? That sounds like a sad work day. Sounds like a sad life. For Sounds a while. like an episode of uh, Black Mirror or something like that. Yeah, that is that that is extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that would have gone over too well in a lot of uh, U.S. union shops around yeah. around here. Yeah. Um, so definitely um, limited places where this would be applicable. You know, I think what we're seeing here, and, and we've talked a lot about mainly a lot of these shipping disasters with mm-hmm. these boats and other things. We're going to talk about one in a little bit here. When it comes down to maintenance and operations that have really been either rushed or maybe not looked at as closely or sidestepped a little bit because there's all this pent-up demand, especially when you're looking in automotive here. Everybody wants to get as many vehicles out there to catch up, get the supply caught up with demand. And 
it's 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 alarming that there's a lot of these safety concerns that are sort of being pushed aside. Mm-hmm. In this instance, when you've got somebody sleeping on the plant floor and then getting up to make cars, something tells me they're not going to be as focused, as attentive, as happy, um, as paying a, maybe paying as close attention to quality controls as you would like mm-hmm. for that. So while I can appreciate sort of the zeal and dedication that maybe is is being offered here, it just seems like a horrible idea and uh, definitely not something to be emulated anywhere. No, uh, Andy, we've seen factories in other countries with less regulation where, you know, employees don't even go home. They sleep at the factory in a, in a dorm type situation. And, you know, sometimes people talk about whether or not it's forced labor. Uh, I get that this is a stopgap as a result of rules that uh, Shanghai has. But at some point, don't you just have to decide like, okay, we're going to take a loss for a couple of days during this lockdown. How, how do you land on it? Do you land like, do you appreciate everything they did to try and keep it up and running? Or is it just a bridge too far? Uh, I think this is a very tough look for GM. Yeah, I know it's a joint venture, but still it's it's them requesting, air quotes, requesting that their employees sleep on the floor and work in isolation in order to keep the supply chain moving. And it's been tough for years for the auto industry from the initial COVID shutdowns through the supply chain issues and uh, now again with another shutdown. But I mean, if this pandemic has or if we've learned anything through two years of the pandemic, it's that you can't have it both ways here. You can't Mm -hmm. do this zero COVID stuff and try to snuff it out and then keep having business as usual. It just doesn't work that way. So you have to I mean, I mean, if you try to have your cake and eat it too here, you end up with a story like this and a rough yeah. headline. So, yeah, a rough headline. And, you know, I always enjoy the statement from the company. And can you believe that GM declined to comment on this one? It's, couldn't find anybody <laughs> upstairs, I guess. Yeah, they were they were they were all home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of it is that Shanghai has a closed loop requirement is that, you know, employees have to stay at the plant. And we joked <clears throat> when we were working uh, throughout the pandemic and kind of uh, coming into shoots, not really working in the office, but we'd see each other sporadically. But we kind of joked like we had our own work bubble. I mean, it was like pretty much I only saw producer Alex for the better for, since from like November to November 2020 to March 2021. <laughs> but, you know, it was like our work bubble. This is like a real extreme work bubble. It's like a work bubble that you can't leave. And how much of a production gain was really realized as a result? Yeah. I mean, again, they're only human. I mean, how can you really function all that well mm-hmm. in that type of environment? You saw some other facilities there that closed down, obviously. Others just did kind of have a skeleton crew yeah. to at least keep things moving a little bit. It just seems like there's a better workaround mm-hmm. than that. And I agree with Andy. This It doesn't matter if it's a joint venture. This looks bad if you're GM. Well, and it's another thing. I mean, we're just making cars here. It's another thing where if you have equipment that can't be shut down, because it just visit like, uh, you know, if you have some sort of I, I can't even think of it, but I know that there's equipment that you just can't physically shut down. It's always going right. to stay on. Yeah. Um, that would make sense to me. You have that skeleton crew to keep it going because so that way, when you do need to turn the lights back on, it's ready to roll. But uh, yeah, overall, uh, the other thing was with the provisions. So Tesla couldn't get the provisions like so they couldn't find cots and food. I can't imagine I, that they really, you know, the way I read it was that GM got permission for their trucks. To keep moving. Okay. I don't know if that's right, but that's how the way I read it is that Tesla did not get that stuff. So they basically had to call it. Oh, okay. Okay. Again, don't know. Well, our most popular story this week. Failed fastener causes $3.8 million in damage. 
On April 22, 2021, a catastrophic engine failure on the Wenatchee Passenger and Car Ferry near Bainbridge Island in Washington started a fire that caused more than $3.8 million in damage. The National Transportation Safety Board recently concluded its investigation and tied the fire to an improperly tightened fastener. A single nut. The fire occurred during a sea trial in Puget Sound after the fastener failure led to components from the engine being ejected and causing a fire in the engine room. Luckily, none of the 13 crew members were injured and their swift action prevented it from being worse. The issue dates back to November 2020 when the Wenatchee, operated by Washington State Ferries, was taken out of service for maintenance. During maintenance, two of the four main engines were overhauled by factory-trained technicians. Andy, the NTSB found that the probable cause of the mechanical failure was insufficient tightening or torquing of a bolt during the engine overhaul. That is an expensive loose nut. Gotta cross your T's and dot your I's. That's right. Um... I read this story and I just, so this, this boat is part of the ferry fleet that goes between Bainbridge Island and Seattle. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it's their daily commute. It can carry what? 200 cars, 1800 people. Yep. I think I read it carries 6 million people a year. This could have been catastrophic Mm -hmm. Had a fire broken out at capacity. I mean, Mm -hmm. just a nightmare. So $4 million, almost $4 million is nothing to sneeze at because again, these are public dollars, but I mean, this could have been so, so much worse. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's a sea trial it happened at. It could have, a month later or whatever, who knows? Yeah. Uh, talking about crossing the T's and dotting the I's, Jeff, that was part of what the NTSB found was it's, you not only have to tighten the nuts to manufacturer specs, but, you know, maybe go in and verify that it was done to that uh, specification. So it's a bolt, bolt, not a nut. Yeah. It's a bolt. I get it. I get it. We'll talk about how... <laughs> I just okay, so this uh, this was my story, and just I the original title, our headline was "Bad Fastener Caused Three Point Eight Million Dollars in Damage," and that fired a lot of people up because Jeff, I thought you know the tightening was part of the fastener, whereas many of the readers believed they they read they saw that headline or the viewers saw that headline and thought, oh, it must be a fastener failure, and. Uh, I just have egg all over my face on this one. It's perspective. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to waffle on this wholeheartedly and go right down the middle without taking a side, but I get why you wrote it the way you did because Mm -hmm. the fastener is what failed and caused the issue, but it wasn't the fastener that actually created the issue. It was the way the fastener was not tightened correctly. Right. Okay. So getting past all that, (laughs) because I'm sure, I'm sure you've moved past it. That's just your personality. You're over it. I can tell. Oh yeah. I'm over all 14 comments that have been in like three emails that are received and two comments directly to the site, whatever. Okay. You didn't talk about it at all with the kids or your wife last night or nothing. It was all good. Des is aware of the issue. And he told me, he just said, dad, what's a bad fastener? It's like, even you. When you were bowling, did you see little bolts standing up there and just going for it? (sighs) Yeah. I actually saw readers. No. <laughs> so just to give some perspective, this is the equivalent of your car throwing a rod. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is incredible maintenance failure. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, these bolts were basically, yeah, they, they kept the connecting rod in place, which is what keeps the piston connected to the camshaft and everything pumping smoothly. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the video and you see the parts laying on the floor, yeah, that's what just blew my mind. Because mm-hmm. if, man, could you imagine if anybody was actually in that engine compartment? Oh, yeah. they. I mean- uh, don't even want to think about that. 
But what we're very fortunate is we have a reader who, whenever we have these types of stories, always writes in, gives us really good perspective on his own personal take. And his name is John Dearden. So I gave him a call, excuse mm-hmm. me. <clears throat> and in talking to him about this and explaining what the NTSB found with this under torquing of the bolt, he basically said, yeah, I mean, that can happen. It's exceptionally rare. Obviously, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen a ton. But the one thing that he thought about was, did they check the equipment that was actually used to mm-hmm. tighten the bolt? Because it's usually done with a hydraulic type setup. If there's a bad leak in the line, if there's something wrong with that tool that could have given a false reading, that could have also played a part into this. Mm-hmm. When you're t- He talked about how detailed it is. And you have to be when you're tearing those things apart and putting them back together. So mm-hmm. this seems like... And this is a weak term, but it just seems like kind of a fluky thing, mm-hmm. especially after talking to John and the how well-trained a lot of the other factory-trained technicians that disassembled two engines, put them back together, and we're basically looking at one piston on one engine mm-hmm. that there was something wrong with. Could have been the tool. Could have been a defect in the bolt. We don't know. We just know it wasn't tightened correctly. There right. could have been something within the um, you know the grooves that the bolt was going into. Yeah. There's any number of little things that could have created this, but when you're looking at that much torque mm-hmm. and that much pressure... Going on within these combustion chambers, it wouldn't take much. And if it wasn't tightened, this is unfortunately what happens. I was uh, one of the first trade shows I ever went to uh, was the first time I saw like a calibrated uh, torque wrench. You know, to, to me, my entire life, a wrench was a wrench. You know, like uh, you tightened it until you couldn't anymore. Unless you really overdid it, then you stripped it and your dad got mad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've all been there yeah but uh so to see how much science goes into these tools and the yeah. ntsb did stress you know uh that uh, technicians should be using calibrated torque wrenches in compliance with the manufacturer's recommendations i can't imagine like uh what john said makes a lot of sense that it probably could have been a tool failure yeah. just because seeing the sophistication with those tools it's uh you know because part of the tool uh Part of the benefit of those tools is that they provide the documentation as well. So you not only have, uh, you know that you're going directly to the manufacturer's recommendations, but you have the traceability because yeah. it tells you exactly when you did it, exactly how much uh, torque you put on it. Um, but I found it, uh, I found stories like this. We did an, another story uh, with a ship where a single screw caused, you know, almost a little over $2 million worth of damage. I just think it's a not a good reminder, but it's good to be reminded that, even the small things can just cause incredible problems. And it's all about the details. It is. And maybe this is a terrible analogy. I don't know. But one of the things that they always talk about, the, the AK-47, mm-hmm. it's an incredibly durable gun because it's not put together that tightly. It's very loose. So if you get dirty, if it gets stuff in there, because of the internal mechanisms, it just keeps going. Yeah. Whereas if you've ever disassembled a rifle, especially like the M16 that I dealt with, if anything was off, if that bolt wasn't completely perfect in its slot with the firing pin in the right place and the firing pin retaining pin in the right place, mm-hmm. you were done. Yeah. It didn't work. So in this case, when you're looking at something that has intentionally such tight tolerances and is such exact precision and everything, yeah, it will be because it, it it's a bolt, right, yeah. that failed here. But that's because everything else was working properly. And you kind of think about if it was sort of that AK-47 approach to craftsmanship, how much worse some of this stuff could be and why it isn't like that anymore. Yeah. And so this was not the first time that improperly torqued fasteners have caused problems. There have actually been three that the NTSB mentioned in the report. There was a fire on the Carnival Liberty cruise ship in 2015, a fire at the Nanita in on the Nanita bulk carrier in 2016, and an engine engine failure on the Red Dawn 
offshore supply vessel in 2017. All of them traced back to bad fastening. And I also just really wanted an excuse to say Red Dawn. Oh, boy. Um, And now, not just uh, the feedback on the bad fastener, but the other thing that made me a little skeptical about this story was the lighter, right? So <clears throat> the lighter, like a great murder mystery. Well, it was, it was the like lighter. We had, we had one, uh, one reader that caught it and sort of, you know, the lighter was the red herring, but it also made me think. So when they did this engine overhaul, one of the technicians dropped a lighter into the engine and that can't be something that's overlooked, you know? So, I mean, uh, they found these lighter pieces coming out of the engine before any of this even happened. And, uh, they called the technicians back in. They found about 70% of the lighter. And they're like, ah, you're fine. You can run it again. You know, and uh, they were able to find some more of the parts after, as they yeah. were kind of like um, going through the investigation. But that was, while that was a red herring, that was also a little bit of a red flag for me. Where it's just like the other technician you're working with is smoking and he goes to like look for his lighter, you know. And he's just like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's a good point. So yeah. maybe, you know, wow, Wisconsin, maybe they could have uh, been a little more careful. But I don't, I'm not here to throw stones. I I mean, you don't want me anywhere near that engine, especially if I'm calling bolts nuts. <laughs> now, <laughs> that, that, that could be an issue. <laughs> I, I got to look at that photo again because I swear it was the nut that was the problem. Anyway, bad fastening. Before we jump to In Case You Missed It, we have another word from our sponsor. Oil Eater's household cleaners, industrial cleaners, and industrial equipment are specifically designed to replace dangerous solvents and are used throughout the world. Our safe water-based formula dissolves grease and grime for almost any surface and leaves a fresh, non-chemical scent. Our ultra-concentrated formulas are perfect for light, medium, or heavy cleaning and can be used on shop floors, in parts washers, to clean equipment, and more. VOC compliant, Oil Eater will do an excellent job in a multitude of applications, safely and cost-effectively, while reducing your chemical usage. Safe for the user, safe for the surfaces being cleaned, and safe for the environment. For more information, visit oileater.com or call 800-528-0334. And we're back with In Case You Missed It, the stories that weren't as popular on the website but still stand to make a big impact on the industry. Uh, Jeff, I'd like to start with you. What is your In Case You Missed It this week? Yes, we've been running a lot of content focused on things going on in Ukraine and the impact it's having on the industrial sector. A lot of it on the cybersecurity side, obviously in the energy side. So I thought this article was also very interesting. And the name of it was, As Russia Sees Tech Brain Drain, Other Nations Hope to Gain. Mm. Rhyming aside, <laughs> the, the critical elements of the article, and I'm just quoting here by one estimate up to 70,000 Computer scientists spooked by a sudden, um, you know, how everything has sort of been shut down. People are turning their shoulder, turning their back kind of on Russia right now. They've bolted and left Russia um, since since the invasion has taken place. Wow. And what you're seeing is a lot of smaller countries right around there are benefiting from all of these skilled individuals coming into their country. So we're looking at folks um, specifically looking to go to Armenia, Georgia, other former Soviet republics in Central Asia. Kazakhstan, I think, is another one that, that was listed there. Mm -hmm. So basically, I th it, it kind of reiterates, and we try to not be political here, but with Russia trying to be a bully and invading Ukraine, and they've already seen all the environment, all the economic sanctions, um, ports shut down, people not wanting to do business there, businesses pulling out of Russia. Mm -hmm. And now they're seeing their own people basically saying, 
we're not down with this. We're not cool with this. We're going to take our skills and go elsewhere. Yeah. It's different, but it's a little bit like what you saw during World War II with a lot of German scientists. Now, mm-hmm. these were higher level individuals who were defecting essentially to the U.S. or other allied countries. But you'd have to think, even though it's a huge country, mm-hmm. there's tons of industry there. When you see that number of people, and that's how many we know about, have left and taken some advanced skills with them to different countries, they're going to feel that. Mm -hmm. We have a skills gap issue here, and we haven't alienated our people more than normal. Okay? (laughs) Yeah. So you got to think this is going to have a long-term impact on Russia, regardless of what happens in Ukraine. And how do you rebuild from that? Well, and that is just the start of it. So- uh, there is a member of the Russian Association for Electronic Communications, which is yeah. an industry lobbying group. He said that in April, another 100,000 tech workers could leave Russia. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. Andy, your thoughts on 200,000 workers bailing? I mean, that's uh, not ideal if you're a tech company in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I, I guess I was unaware. I learned that there were countries where you just could go if you were Russian and didn't need a visa to work. You yeah. could just cross yeah. the border and show up and be like, hey, what's going on, guys? Oh, I didn't I know that a computer That is scientist. the case with those ones that we just they talked about. They said in this yeah. article that there is um, a very small subset of, I think, elite, they called them, but they have uh, European work visas, so they were headed to um, NATO countries, basically. But um, most most of them are headed to these countries that you already mentioned because they don't need a visa to go there. So Okay. No, that has got to be... Um, I feel like every week we talk about another sanction or another thing that is uh, you know, going to hit Russia as a result of their war uh, with Ukraine. And, I mean, if they didn't feel the effect of 70,000 workers leaving, computer specialists, I mean, they have to with another 100,000. Well, it almost leads you to believe that Putin somehow thinks they don't need anybody else. Mm-hmm. They're just going to be Russia and they're just going to do their thing. Well, <laughs> all those tech companies that rely on these workers, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. There's got to be better environments to work in. And you can't can't rely on state sponsored companies for everything. Yeah, I mean that's a ridiculous mindset. But he's in a ridiculous mind. So yeah, in the interim, they're going to go nowhere and do nothing because yeah, they put that neck out too well, far. When you see their own people basically saying, "The hell with this." Yeah, um, it's a pretty strong statement. Um, Andy, what is your in case you missed it this week? Uh, I wanted to highlight a new. U.S. auto plant that we are apparently going to see in a couple of years here. Um, so the name of the company is called VinFast. Um, it is part of Vietnam's largest conglomerate, which is called Vin Group. Mm. Um, uh, and they established, they said they were going to make cars in 2017. And apparently they're they're doing so both internal combustion um, and uh, electric vehicles uh, in its native country. Um, and they've basically said, we're going to go to the U.S. and then eventually Europe. So mm-hmm. they announced a $4 billion, 7,500 worker factory near Raleigh, North Carolina that would be able to make uh, about 150,000 electric vehicles vehicles per year with operations starting in 2024. So uh, North Carolina uh, was uh, shouting this through the bullhorn this week because they have missed out on a number of automotive plants over recent decades. So Mm -hmm. they're uh, feeling good about themselves here. Um, I'm uh, naturally a little skeptical after doing this job for a while. (laughs) So, uh, I'll be interested to see what happens over the next couple of years, given that this is a startup foreign automaker jumping into the U.S. market uh, and being a little light on details as far as pricing of their first SUVs that were unveiled. So um, it's good for for now, but uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Maybe take it with a grain of salt. No, that's uh, you're definitely right. When you see stories like this or uh, 
for me, it's when people bring it up uh, at the bar or around the uh, dinner table. And you're just like, oh, yeah, that sounds nice, but we'll see. Mm-hmm. I guess I get a little more positive because it seems more realistic. I mean, we've still got the Foxconn cloud hanging over everything mm-hmm. because it was so enormous. Mm-hmm. This seems more measured. Yeah. You know, it is a lot of jobs, 7,500 jobs. That is a that's lot. Incredible. Yeah. But they're looking, that's going to be a ramp up by 2027. Mm-hmm. So they've got five years to kind of figure that out and put things in place. Everything with Foxconn was Right away. Yeah, it's going to be right away. So I think it was also interesting, and you kind of alluded to this, Andy, how they were so proud of the fact that they finally beat South Carolina when Mm -hmm. it came to (laughs) to landing some of these this automotive business. The other thing that makes sense with this, with these automakers and where they're going, I think we've talked about this a couple of times, it's that southeastern part of the country. There is such a heavy supply chain already in place. It does make sense for people to to look at this area when starting a new um, vehicle manufacturing operation, and it's going to be electric vehicles. So they're going to get a lot of political support uh, mm-hmm. in that respect, too. Mm-hmm. No, it was uh, it was down to this site and then Savannah, Georgia, I believe. So it's uh, people in Savannah are licking their wounds right now. North Carolina, also, they got the Rivian plant, Georgia did. So, okay. so they're, uh, they're that was one that North Carolina also missed out on. So <laughs> got one on the board. Uh, and talking about salary, they said the average salary is going to be fifty-one thousand dollars. So you know, a livable wage. Not quite forty bucks an hour, but we're we're getting there. Yeah, getting there again. Measured, yes. measured. Yeah. Uh, no, it's um, again. I would like whenever you see stories like this, you want them to succeed, and I just hope that we get to keep telling more positive stories about developments in North Carolina. All right, <clears throat> my in case you missed it this week was about manufacturing heading to space because. It has everything I enjoy all in one headline. So DARPA recently kicked off a new program for space-based manufacturing. Now, we're not talking about factories on Mars or the moon, but using raw materials sent from the Earth, combining them with raw materials from the moon to manufacture large structures in space. Now, this program is called the Novel Orbital Moon Manufacturing Materials and Mass Efficient Design Program, or what I was calling NOMAD, but... Nolan kind of thinks they might be calling it NOM 4D. I don't really see that. What's wrong with him? <laughs> what would you call it NOM 4D? What is that? He just is taking it very literal, very literal. But I mean, sometimes, you know, when you start switching in numbers for letters, it gets tricky. Nolan, you're not invited to basketball this week. <clears throat> My goodness. That's not true. You can come. I don't play. And <laughs> <laughs> So <clears throat> DARPA chose eight teams to develop new ways to design and manufacture these large structures in space. Now, rockets don't have enough room to launch these large Earth-made systems. According to Bill Carter, who's the program manager for Nomad, size is critical to the performance of things like solar arrays, antennas, and optical systems. If Nomad is a success, future structures would no longer be held to these launch constraints because they will be built off Earth. Jeff, this Carter guy predicts that in 10 to 20 years, we could be seeing Nomad-developed technologies in action, including robots assembling large structures from Nomad-manufactured components. And that's cool. It's very cool. Mm-hmm. What what exactly are we looking to build? Is this like building a space station up there instead of launching it? That type yeah, of thing? Yeah, not a space station. Like uh, uh, when they mentioned solar arrays, antennas, and optical systems, I'm thinking large equipment that goes up, maybe making a satellite larger, large equipment that goes onto a space station, making okay. larger components in space, not but not, not yet a space station so one day. <laughs> I think it makes a ton of sense. And we've looked at this before, I think, from the 3D printing. That was one of the applications early on. They, they looked at being mm-hmm. able to build more stuff on, not on site, but 
yeah, no, head I, location, whatever, yeah, no, whatever uh, that may be, a yeah, piece of space. 3D printing using regolith. Yeah. Yeah. So cool idea, especially when you look at having potentially smaller rockets, needing less fuel, less cost, everything to get them up there to do what we need to do and, and find out more stuff. No, I think it's it's an amazing um, idea. I like anything DARPA does. Mm-hmm. Uh, they seem to have it's just they get the coolest stuff. So I think it's a it's a very cool idea. It'll be interesting to see what type of technologies is embedded into this program to make it a reality because the stuff they figure out how to do up there, it can also come back oh, here yeah. and, and help us what we're doing on earth. Right. Andy, I just want to see the DARPA think tank because I feel like all the ideas that they have normally at companies, they're just like, <laughs> you're crazy. You kind of fired. But at DARPA, <laughs> kind they're of, like, you're kind of fired. Yeah. We're going to put you down in R and D. Don't do anything. Pack your stuff. You hear it? Put your stuff in a box, but you don't have to take it out yet. Yeah. Yeah. Hear it and fire off a press release and uh, have a bunch of physicists uh, float some ideas for us. Yeah. It is. uh, And if you go through the list of teams, it is just some of the elite universities and elite companies that have done a lot of aerospace and uh, deep space work. So it would, it'll just be interesting to see if any of these projects from the eight different teams pan out Turn into anything. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Andy, I'd like to start with you. Any final thoughts? Um, I know we just talked about a near disaster on a ferry ship, but uh, I was just thinking, I was reminded rather reading that story that I need to uh, go take my car on more ferries because that's just a cool experience all the way around. So, yeah, it is. Um, might have to go out to, uh, to Seattle and, and take that ride because that looks like a scenic, particularly scenic vista. There's the the ferry that'll take you from like I believe the Sheboygan area over to Michigan. Mm-hmm. I haven't taken that. Um, I have family that lives over in Holland, Michigan, and they've taken it before. Really enjoy it. Um, the one ferry I've taken is from Washington Islands um, up in the uh, the Thumb. If you're looking at Wisconsin, mm-hmm. um, and I love ferries, especially because we have a rule that you have to cash at least two bottles of wine while you're on the ferry. <laughs> it just makes them more enjoyable. Wow. And that's kind of a quick trip. So, <laughs> and it's, you know, you're going through door County, so it's you a sweet wine. They don't, it's, there's no, uh, car traffic on Washington Island. Is no, there? no, no, no. That was, uh, we didn't take, so it this, is all, very, this yeah. is all very safe. No, no there there's car traffic. Yeah, you can, oh. you take your car over. Yeah. yeah oh, it was expensive. That's why I didn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, should have brought my bike. Yeah, no, we, uh, you can take your car to Washington Island. If you take the other ferry to Rock Island, now that's where the party is. Okay. That's the uh, the island with uh, the dark campsites, and I just love it there. It is, uh, you know, a complete return to nature, and you got to make sure, you're talking about bringing provisions, you can get caught up Got to double check that list. So interesting story. Actually, I was on that ferry mm-hmm. coming back from Washington Island with my family when I got a call from the president of this company oh. stating that the final piece of the puzzle had come into play that we were actually going to start this company oh so there's great. my piece of fairy reminiscence nice. I, yeah. I uh i didn't i thought that was going to take a dark turn like i was on a ferry <laughs> when i was called <laughs> by the president of a company i'm like oh no what are we doing <laughs> is this the last the last episode um no oh. i mean well Brighten just, up a little. I <laughs> come on. I'm generally bright. I just don't bring that sunshine with me to the podcast all the time. <laughs> David no. bringing sunshine. All right. Yeah. Um, There's a band name. Yeah. My final thought this week is that uh, so Des, our oldest, is going to turn four years old in April, and for the first time since I think he's been born, we're going to try doing like a date night 
where we have a non-family member babysitter. And I'm I'm excited. At first, the contrived nature of the entire thing where you have to like schedule three weeks in advance mm-hmm. to try and find three hours out with your <laughs> with your wife. I was just like, we can't be those people. And then I tried figuring it out and you can't do it without a three week window. It's like no one is that person <laughs> unless they're just they're the people they're the people that leave the kids in the car while they have three hours at the bar. Ooh, don't be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. And my final thought is that I'm just really looking forward to that. We don't really have much of a plan. We might only be gone for 45 minutes out of just fear and separation <laughs> anxiety, but it should be fun. I know your babysitters. Yeah. You're, you're in good hands. Yeah. They couldn't have been recommended more highly. So I'm really looking forward to it. Good deal. Uh, Jeff, your final thoughts this week. Well, I've got a very important final thought because finally, after months of supply chain struggles, the Today in Manufacturing podcast hats are here. So for those dozen people that I owe a hat to, please remind me. I'll try to get this out to you. Um, I think they turned out pretty well. Don't really let nice. my modeling. They're throw, very nice, um, actually. Really yeah. good hats. How they look, but they look great. They are very comfortable. Got the snapback, all that good stuff. They so are stitched. They, they fit my enormous head, so that's a plus. Yeah. That, and if you want to win your own, yeah, you can answer the trivia question correctly. Is it to win? I mean, to win one of these is one trivia question because I mean, this is. I mean, a shirt's a shirt, but this is a nice. <laughs> you know what? That's no, a good you, point. We do we do the shirt first. Yeah. Then we go to the hats. Okay. So first, win your shirt. Then okay. you can win one of these hats. And then, like I said, I owe like five people a hat. Oh, so. well, you guys are in luck. Yeah. Especially with summer coming. Yeah. It's a fine. Got to protect fine the dome. Yeah. So getting to this week's trivia. Well, actually, last week's trivia question. Yeah. And I just want to know, want you to know that Anna got it correct within minutes of us signing off. Yeah. Despite David's incoherent rambling about stripping people's clothes off. Man. Yeah. I, I um, even remember that. Like, uh, I can't remember the reader who... Email. Oh, it was loyal listener Doug. Yeah, loyal yeah. listener Doug was like, I don't understand why David wants to take people's clothes off. And when I read that, I thought to myself, I didn't say that. I went back oh. to the podcast and I'm like, I did mm. I repeatedly. Did. Yeah, <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, so the qu- the question from last week was when um, helping somebody who's dealing with a heat related injury, heat exhaustion, heat stroke. One of the first steps initially is to loosen tight clothing. Mm-hmm. Helps with the blood flow, helps with circulation, helps to cool them off, all that good stuff. But there's one situation in which you do not do that. That situation is if you are in a chemical environment. So even whether it's on the battlefield where people are using some bad stuff or even really an industrial sector where there's maybe some bad things going on um, in the shop, mm-hmm. some sort of accident, spill, whatever, don't loosen that clothing in that environment. We did have Mark, again, get that one correctly. One of the guys getting a hat, had some other answers, but that was the one we were looking for. Okay. All right. Moving on to this week. We're going to go back to a little bit more first aid. Again, sourcing from my Soldier's Book of Common Tasks, circa 2003. Okay. You guys know what a tourniquet is, correct? I do. Applying a tourniquet, you know, Mm -hmm. put that on there to stop blood flow. After the tourniquet is applied... And it's in place, it's secured, all that good stuff. There is one final thing that you should do before, I guess, moving on to the next individual or, or leaving that person. So you've applied the tourniquet, but before you leave them, before you go help anybody else, there's one thing that you need to do. Mm. And to give you a little hint, this is something that is less about, it's also about that casualty or that individual, but it's also about those who are going to be stepping in to help that individual once the like first aid, like the real medical people arrive on, on site. Okay. So it's one, I, I actually learned it as two steps. 
The book only mentioned one, so it tells you how old I am. But there's a couple of different variables to this answer that would be acceptable. But again, you've applied the tourniquet. There's one step you need to take before moving on to the next individual to help before Mm. first aid gets there, before the real medical professionals get there. Is it like, I have no idea. I have no idea. Anything coming to mind? Um, I had an initial suspicion, but I think we'll that step it. is probably taken before. We'll do, we'll do it off air. Yeah. But the one yeah. thing to think about is you want to make sure, remember what you just did. Tourniquet is stopping blood flow completely. Yeah. So there is something you want to do to assist that will help oh. that patient long-term. Don't say it. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> long-term, <laughs> help the patient. Short-term, help the uh the doctor, the medical specialist. No, I know that we normally brain or uh, answer after we conclude just to see if we're anywhere in the ballpark. But since I had nothing, I felt confident <laughs> asking Andy. Just being like, you got nothing too, right? Why? What is okay. this? I might know. I don't. Andy's here. David, no offense, but you have not gotten one of these right yet. I mean. You're working. You're getting day. closer. One day. You're getting closer. I am. Not last week. <laughs> <laughs> Took a few steps back. Well, very good. Uh, no, that's. Uh, so Mark gets a hat. Mark gets a hat. We've got a bunch of guys that I got to send hats out to. But if you could send me a reminder, I would be grateful. <laughs> Very good. Just like the hat's coming. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by giving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Andy at IN.com with email the podcast. Finally, you can make sure to get the podcast to your inbox first. Subscribe to one of our weekly or daily newsletters. Before we get out of here, Andy, thanks, man. You did great today. Yeah, uh, good work. Yeah. yeah, Happy to be here. You can also email Anna and just vent, vent about how poorly we did and how yeah. important she is to yeah, the podcast. Yeah, if you want to podcast. roast me for my yeah. work today, just direct it to Anna. Yeah, let Anna know how much she was missed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Please come back. You're the anchor. Ugh. All right. Well, I'm David Manti. For Jeff and Andy Zoll, no Jeff Frankie and Andy Zoll, I'm David Manti. <laughs> this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. They're not brothers. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.